1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Jaws? The Movie Review Program. I'm Paul Spritaro, and I am once again joined by my buddy Blaine Dallow. Welcome aboard, Blaine. Well, thanks for having me back, Paul. Ah, thanks for coming back. You are becoming my go-to guy for movies that show up on lists of, like, the top 100 of all time. And a lot of times it's movies that I'm thinking other people are going to say, yeah, I don't feel like doing that one. <laughs> and I think this one falls right into that, that mold. Yeah, I can see that. It's, it's not for everybody. No, it's not. Uh, but this is one, this is, this is actually the first time I ever saw this. Um, this is one of the movies that's routinely on those lists. And it's one of the ones that I have to pass by and say, yeah, I never saw that. And what I do is I find myself going to Turner Classic Movies in the guide on the uh, cable box. And then just kind of going forward for the next week and seeing what movies are going to be shown. And when they're movies that pique my interest, I DVR them and then I watch them when I get around to it. And this is one that actually falls into that category. And then last week when I was watching it, you uh, messaged back, oh, yeah, I got to watch that again. And I thought, perfect time to set up an Is It Yours episode. So uh, what's your history with this? Um, this is actually the, the second time I watched it. The first time was in a film studies course at university uh, a little over 20 years ago. And then when I was building the DVD collection, the Criterion Collection put out uh, 50 years of Janus Films box set, which was... 50 Criterion Collection quality transfers, just without the bonus features, in one box. And this is one of the 50 movies that made the cut. Mm -hmm. So the, this copy has been sitting in that box unwatched for a little too long. So when I saw you post, my comment was like, oh yeah, I got to rewatch that to hear when it was covered on the podcast. Because when you post in the Is It Jaws group on Facebook, I've just been assuming that you already have a guest lined up for it, and that's why you're deliberately watching it. Well, but. Sometimes I do, and sometimes I'm just telling people, hey, this is one I'm interested in, and I'm watching it. Uh, but I, a lot of times there is already a guest lined up, but, you know, not always. And sometimes I'm watching it with no intention of doing an episode, but just sharing with people. You know, it's funny with the, the Is It Yours uh, page on, on Facebook, uh, <laughs> I set this up as a in my mind, a movie appreciation page. So if you're watching a classic movie or you want to discuss a classic movie or you have a comment on a classic movie, that's where you do it. Or even a current movie, for that matter. Uh, whereas other people seem to have taken it as a page to put funny shark pictures. <laughs> so, And I don't mind the funny shark pictures, but it's really just not my purpose. Yeah. So, just, just uh, you know... Uh, I don't know. It's a little amusing that the, the perspective on the page is a little different for different people. That's what I would say. Uh, 
this movie in particular, like I said, this this is routinely on on you know certainly if not one of the best movies of all time, probably one of the most influential movies of all time. Uh, you know, yeah. Akira Kurosawa, who's considered one of the greatest directors of all time, I would say this is in the 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 holy trio of his movies of ones that they say oh you got to see these and now now I've seen two out of three because I've seen this and I've seen the seven, seven samurai I have yet to see Yojimbo which I need to see uh, yeah Yojimbo and Sejiro if you're I know that you're a Western fan so for the uninitiated listeners a lot of Kurosawa's samurai films were adapted into American westerns because the foreign language subtitle films didn't do that well, so they brought the story across in other ways. Seven Samurai was adapted as The Magnificent Seven. Yojimbo was adapted as Fistful of Dollars, and Sanjuro was adapted as For a Few Dollars More. Okay, well, we just recently, it has not yet posted, but we just recently covered uh, A Fistful of Dollars, uh, which will air which will post before this one so by the time people are listening to this that will already be out there for people so it, it there's kind of a symmetry to uh doing a, a kurosawa influenced movie and then following it up with a kurosawa movie oh yeah but uh yeah he's he's i mean this this one uh i guess i should give the plot because i don't think you ruin the watching experience of this one by knowing the plot in fact i think it actually helps it a little Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a little lengthy, so bear with me for just a few minutes. The film opens on a woodcutter and a priest sitting beneath the Rashomon city gate to stay dry in a downpour. A commoner joins them, and they tell him that they witnessed a disturbing story, which they begin to re- which they begin recounting to him. The woodcutter claims he found the body of a murdered samurai three days earlier while looking in the- for wood in the forest. Upon discovering the body, he says he fled in panic to notify the authorities. The priest says that he saw the samurai and his wife traveling the same day the murder happened. Both men are then summoned to testify in court where they meet, meet the captured bandit Tajumura, I'm saying that terribly, I'm sure, who claims to have set the samurai free after encountering him in the forest. And then we get each story. The bandit's story uh, is first. He claims that he tricked the samurai to step off the mountain trail with him and look at a cache of ancient swords which he discovered in the grove he in the, in the grove oh excuse me <laughs> of ancient swords he discovered in the grove he tied the samurai to the tree then brought the samurai's wife there she initially tried to defend herself with a dagger but was eventually seduced by the bandit the woman filled with shame then begged him to duel to the death with her husband to save her from the guilt and shame of having two men know her dishonor tajumaru honorably set the samurai free and dueled with him. In Tajimaru's recollection, they fought skillfully and fiercely, but in the end, Tajimaru was the victor, and the woman ran away. At the end of the story to the court, he is asked about an expensive dagger owned by the samurai's wife. He says that in the confusion, he forgot all about it, and that it was foolish of him to leave behind such a valuable object. Then we hear from the samurai's wife, who tells the court that Tajimaru left after raping her. She begged her husband to forgive her, but he simply looked at her coldly. Then she freed him and begged him to kill her so that she would be at peace. He continued to stare at her with a look of loathing. His expression disturbed her so much that she fainted with the dagger in hand. She awoke to find her husband dead and the dagger in his chest. She attempted to kill herself, but failed in her efforts. Then we hear the samurai's version, the deceased samurai, which is being told through a medium, he claims that Tajumara, after raping his wife, asked her to travel with him. She accepted and asked Tajumara to kill her husband so that she would not have to feel the guilt of belonging to two men. Tajumaru, shocked by this request, grabbed her and gave the samurai a choice of letting the woman go or killing her. For these words alone, the dead samurai recounted, I was ready to pardon his crime. The woman fled and Tajumaru, after attempting to recapture her, gave up and set the samurai free. The samurai then killed himself with his wife's dagger. Later, somebody removed the dagger from his chest. Then we hear from the woodcutter. Back at the Rashomon Gate, the woodcutter explains to the commoner that all three stories were falsehoods. The woodcutter had actually witnessed the rape and murder, he says, but just did not want to get too involved at the trial. 
According to the woodcutter's news story, Tajumaru begged the samurai's wife to marry him, but the woman instead freed her husband. The husband was initially unwilling to fight Tajumaru, saying he, could, he would not risk his life for a spoiled woman. But the woman then criticized both him and Tajumaru, saying that they were not real men and that a real man would fight for the woman's love. She spurned the men. She spurred the men to fight one another, but then hid her face in fear once they raised swords. The men too were visibly fearful, fearful as they began fighting. They began a duel that was much more pitiful than Tajumaro's account had made it sound, and Tajumaro ultimately won through a stroke of luck. After some hesitation, he killed the samurai who begged for his life on the ground, and the woman fled in horror. Tajumaro could not catch her, but the samurai's sword but took the samurai sword and left the scene limp limping. At the gate, the woodcutter, priest, and commoner are interrupted from their discussion by the woodcutter's account by the sound of a crying baby. They find the baby abandoned in a basket, and the commoner takes a kimono and an amulet that have been left, with, left for the baby. The woodcutter reproaches the commoner for stealing from the abandoned baby, but the commoner chastises him, having deduced that the reason the woodcutter did not speak up at the trial was because he was the one who stole the dagger from the scene of the murder. The commoner mocks him as a bandit, call, calling another a bandit. The commoner leaves Rashomon claiming that all men are motivated only by self-interest. These deceptions and lies shake the priest's faith in humanity. He's brought back to his senses when the woodcutter reaches for the baby in the priest's arms. The priest is suspicious at first, but the woodcutter explains that he intends to take care of the baby along with his own children, of whom he has six. This simple revelation recasts the woodcutter's story and the subsequent theft of the dagger in a new light. The priest gives the baby to the woodcutter, saying that the woodcutter has given him reason to continue having hope in humanity. The film closes on the woodcutter walking home with the baby. The rain has stopped and the clouds have opened, revealing the sun in contrast to the beginning where it was overcast. And hopefully somebody who has not seen the movie, and I would assume most of the people listening have not actually, uh, has a basic understanding of the storyline now. And then as you watch it, I think it makes it easier to follow along with what's going on with the narrative if you already know that. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, it is, I think... It makes it much easier to, to settle in and understand what you're watching if you know what is now known as the Rashomon effect is going on, where you know you're getting the contradictory versions of the same story from four different witnesses. Yeah, and now so. I'm most <laughs> I'm most familiar with the Rashomon effect in television sitcoms. I can think of episodes of The Odd Couple, of All in the Family, of Everybody Loves Raymond, right off the top of my head where they did the exact same type thing where you had one character telling a version of the story. Then you either had three characters telling versions of the story that were all very geared to their own perspective, or you had two do that and then you had a third one give the reality. Yeah, that was pretty common. I remember an episode of Different Strokes that had that with... You know, where it was, uh, you know, the father and the two kids gave their versions and then ultimately it was the, you know, the housekeeper who gave the one that that seemed to be the true one. Right. So, again, the, the four stories like Rashomon, there's an episode of The X-Files uh, called Bad Blood from season five where it's just two perspectives. It's Mulder and Scully's two different perspectives as they, you know, go to a vampire town with Luke Wilson as one of the vampires before he gets famous. Right. I could also think of an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where they did the Rashomon effect while uh, Will Riker is on trial for, a, a, I think it was for a manslaughter as opposed to a murder, but it might have been a murder. Uh, and then they, they go through, you know, like they, they go through their versions and then they have a computer re recreation which shows you exactly what did happen. Yeah. So Yeah, there, there's a number of them. Well, I mean, you mentioned that this is one of the most referenced movies ever. While you were doing the recap, I counted the references on the IMDb, and there's over 130 of them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we could fill an hour podcast just listing the ones that have copied this structure. Well, I, I, I'm thinking of, uh, like, one person who I think is a possible devotee of this and certainly a, a devotee of Asian films is Quentin Tarantino. Uh, and I'm thinking he used, to a smaller extent, some of the Rashomon effect in uh, Reservoir Dogs, in Pulp Fiction, and in Jackie Brown that I could think of off the top of my head. 
but I'm trying to think of another movie if if there's an, an Americanized actual adaptation of this same story, and I am not coming up with one. I don't know if you're familiar with any. Uh, there, there actually is. There's two American TV movies from 1960 and 1961 listed on the IMDb. I've seen neither of them. And I'm I'm not terribly surprised that I haven't really seen or heard of the direct adaptations because while the story structure is part of what makes this movie so well known, part of why it, it was so popular is because Akira Kurosawa is one of the best directors of all time. Mm-hmm. I I mentioned in our Psycho podcast that my my top three directors are Stanley Kubrick. Alfred Hitchcock and Fritz Long. But the more I see work by, you know, Fritz Long's Let's Known work, more by Kurosawa and more by Ingmar Bergman, they're definitely my top five. And Kurosawa and Bergman are, you know, climbing up to, to pass Fritz Long there. Hmm, interesting. Uh, yeah, and again, I've only seen two Kurosawa films at this point. And you know, being a film fan, if I have more time, I, I could find myself watching more, certainly, uh, the two you mentioned are, uh, are are likely at some point. Uh, I do see where this is directed very well, uh, because this is a clumsy type of narrative to try and put together, uh, and to try and put it together in a uh, an artful way is a huge task. Uh, and I think he does. I think if you're watching it, I do think there's an advantage to having knowledge of the plot as i mentioned already but i think some of that advantage is due to the fact that this is an older film this is 1950 so we don't have quite the same uh on-screen aesthetics that we would today so somebody watching it now is going to have to deal with that and you're also dealing with you know japanese language and subtitles so you're not able to watch it as closely because you have to read the, the words as they're coming on the screen uh, so I think a, a little bit of knowledge helps on that in that respect because it makes it a little easier on your brain. Uh, but again, I think the structure of this this film is really really well done because it is something that you could follow fairly easy, despite being incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's the way he directs it. You so much of the emotion and the, the plot structure is conveyed by you know the blocking how the characters are set up where they are so when people are in positions of authority or subservience they're higher or lower on the screen uh, even just the opening credit sequence where they cover the credits by having the woodcutter walk through the woods this is one of the first handheld camera shots and the first time a movie camera was pointed at the sun and you could still see the image mm-hmm. so you know, other cinematographers were looking at this, going, "How did they do this?" Right, and, and so, 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 what to, might cause... look a little clumsy by today's standards, in, from a filmmaking perspective, uh, it was groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, very much so. It would, you know, it, it'd be almost like modern audiences watching the jazz singer or La Cucaracha. Right, the jazz singer was the first movie to show to have synchronized sound with live action. It deserves a place in history for that. It will always be remembered for that. If it was the second movie to have synchronized sound in live action, I think it would have been forgotten. Yeah, I think you're probably correct on that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not all that special otherwise. And it's only partially synchronized. The, the Have you seen it? or I've, se- I've seen clips. I've never seen it from beginning to end. Okay. Uh, basically, the jazz singer is, you know chatting up a girl he's on a date while he's performing so they'll have a conversation at a table with the intertitles that are common in silent films and then he gets up on stage and does a song number and that's what's synchronized mm-hmm. and that's it it's a very bland date that just showcases the music it's really more of a a filmed concert than a movie mm, interesting and, yeah la cucaracha was the first um live action color film it was a 20 or 30 minute short that I also saw in film studies and that the colors were very exaggerated. It would see it. It's very clumsy now, but 
you know, it was the first time they had any color and they were really leaning into it, you know, shining a red light on someone's face when he got angry and stuff like that. Right. It was really exaggerated. This could be the same where if you watch it now, if you are not familiar enough with film history to recognize the context, you could be sitting there going, okay, so it's nonlinear storytelling, but, you know, and we're getting contradictory stories, but so what? If you don't realize that all those sitcoms and other shows we grew up with doing this are homaging this film, Mm -hmm. and this was the originator, it may not seem as special. And I think what what takes it a step further is it's it's showing a a revelation on film of something that we deal with in our everyday life, not to this Mm -hmm. scale where it's a murder trial, but just, you know... Constantly, we deal with the fact that we get a story from somebody and we think, okay, I know what happened. And then down the road, you hear the contradictory story from someone else who was at the same event. And then you start, you know, like your eyes open up and you say, you know, <laughs> it's it, it goes to almost the uh, the old saying that, that history is written by the winners. Mm-hmm. And I think when you start factoring the Rashomon effect into things, you start realizing that when you're studying history or when you're reading history, you have to take a lot of what's reported with a grain of salt, unless it's something that's totally, totally objective. Yeah. You know, you if someone says this document or this treaty was signed on this date and time in this city, you could take that at face value. Yeah, but when they no. start talking about the motivations of people or what was mm-hmm. done behind closed doors that you, you know, that is subject to a certain amount of speculation, it really does just make you very, very cynical about things that are reported in the newspaper and in history books. And it's, it keep, it keeps you from having a level of naivete, but it, you do, you do have a sadness that that naivete is gone. Cause you know, you, you think back to when you were a kid and you read the history books and you know, we're always the good guys. And you know, it's, it's, it's kind of sad to know that that's not necessarily true. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we, we want to believe that that's true, but then, I mean, we're we're from Canada, the United States. You know, we can look back at World War II saying we were fighting the good fight against Nazis who had those concentration camps. And then it's like, okay, we, we had internment camps in Canada and the United States as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I have uncles who were interred because... You know, their ancestors were Japanese, even though they don't speak a word of Japanese. They were, you know, culturally pure Canadian. They were born and raised here, as were their, you know, their parents. They were the third generation, but... Yeah, I I look back on that, and I don't want to, you know, go too far from the movie. I look back on that, and my hope is that I can believe that we were much more humane in our concentration camp creation than they were in Germany. But other than that, I I can't believe that we did anything that was right there because, from what I understand, we ruined a lot of people's lives. Uh, So, you know, for for that, I I have uh, a level of shame. (laughs) Certainly not regret because I wasn't alive, but, uh, you know, I I, I just find that to be bothersome to some extent when I read about it. And, uh, you know, I, I just... My my hope is you just move on from there, and you you know you learn from your mistakes, and you don't do those kind of things anymore. But you know, history has yeah. a way of repeating itself. It 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 does, and we're well. We can get into politics of American borders right now, but we're not going to. No, yeah, we, we, I think I think we've 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 come as close to the border as we want to go, and we want to get back to this movie. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, as I'm watching it again, I I could see the deft hand in the direction. Uh, A lot of the shot choices I thought were well done to convey emotion, to convey the story. Close-ups where they uh, were meaningful, but not overdone. Uh, I think, you know, Kurosawa had a a very good, very, very good eye for storytelling. Uh, You know, I I would put him on, uh, you know, again, you got to take into account the technical ability that they had at the time, but I would put them on, you know, a level with like Steven Spielberg, as far as storytelling goes, uh, you know, to look at one of the more modern masters that people are going to look at. You know, I think that's one of his huge 
uh, strengths is just being able to tell a narrative where you're seeing the emotion and moving along without, you know, it's, it's the show us, don't tell us kind of thing. Uh, I, I see yeah. that in this. Uh, on the other hand, I do see what I interpret as a lot of overacting by some of these people. Uh, it it's om- almost appears to me as if they knew it was going to be watched by somebody who didn't understand the language, so they had to show it in their body language a little bit more, uh, more like a stage play than a, uh, mm-hmm. than a film. I'm not sure what, what you think about that. Yeah, I, I would agree that it was... I think it's less about the translation and more about the stage play history because the the Japanese film industry was younger than the American film industry, but pretty much every country when they start producing films, they go through growing pains where the exaggerated motions you need on the stage so that the people in the back rows of the audience can follow the story are reproduced on screen because that's the way the people have been trained to act. Mm-hmm. And, so and I could easily see this translating American films too. Yo, oh, yeah, absolutely, especially in the uh, the uh, non you know, silent, the silent films. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I could see where this would easily be adapted to a stage play. Mm-hmm. You know, it's primarily you know you have like two two uh, two sets, and then you have you know however many what is a total of like five or six actors. I could see where this could easily be done as a stage play. Uh, and, and it would be interesting from that perspective as well. But uh, I don't know. I, you know. Again, I'm not overly familiar with this forum. Uh, the actors that are in this movie, do you know if any of them were well-known Japanese actors? Or if this is just a, a, you know, a, a crew of unknowns that Kurosawa put together? Um, the actually the only one I'm aware of that really made a name started with this film and this collaboration. And that's, um, the name I'm about to mispronounce almost certainly Toshiro Mifune who plays Tajumaru, the bandit. Mm -hmm. This was his first collaboration with Kurosawa and they started working together tightly and repeatedly from then on. It was one of those director actor combinations that just stuck with it. It's like, a you know, Johnny Depp and Danny Elfman kind of, or sorry, Johnny Depp and Tim Burton kind of thing mm-hmm. where they consistently work together. So Mifune also appears in seven samurai. Uh, most North Americans, if you have seen Toshiro Mifune without watching Japanese films, it's because you've seen the memes going around saying, are you thinking of getting a man bun? Ask yourself this question. Are you Toshiro Mifune? <laughs> if the answer is yes, you can pull off a man bun. If the answer is no, do not try. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that one, but I, I, that's pretty amusing. Uh, and, and it's nice that he, he's survived in pop culture to this to this extent. Uh, this is a movie where when I did sit down to watch it, I felt I needed to sit down and watch it alone because I don't live close enough to my friend Blaine Dowler to watch it with him. And I don't know of anybody who I see on a regular basis, Tino or my kids, who would have an interest in watching this purely from a film history point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that respect, I would say I would recommend this to people who have that historical interest. And I would recommend it to people who have an interest in just you know general narrative storytelling and different ways of doing things, because it's fascinating from that perspective. But I think the average person... In this day and age, and the let me let me change that. The average English-speaking person in this day and age, uh, sitting down to watch this purely from an entertainment perspective, uh, instead of whatever other movie they were going to watch, I'm not sure they would have the appreciation for it that would make it worth their while, despite the fact that it's routinely considered one of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah, I can't argue with that, and that was, you know, it's that tug of war. That I was thinking about to determine my my final rating, which I don't know if we're ready to get into yet. Not not quite yet, but we'll get there. Yeah, I uh, yeah, it's it's to me it this this is akin to when you and I reviewed the general, and ultimately yeah. at the end of the day we both came back with the. It's not for everybody, but if you have an interest in film history, if you have an interest in, you know, 
storytelling that that's wide enough to encompass a silent movie then yes you should see this because it's historical and it's very well done in its day and age but that if you don't have those interests you're going to lose interest in this movie very quickly and turn it off and i think this this one hits fits that same type of uh that's that that same type of description yeah if anything it would be even more pronounced I think this was more influential in the way films were made, but is probably less accessible as pure entertainment. And yet, as I watched it, because I had the mindset that I was going to watch it, as it went on, much like the general, I got pulled in and I was entertained by it. And the, and the narrative was compelling. Uh, again, I, I had some, some issues with the level of the acting. Uh, and I, again, I think, you know, you can attribute most of that to being a different time. When I get acting like that now in a movie, I'm more critical of the director because I feel like it's easier to set up a shot because of the way the technology is now, and they should be paying more attention to the performances they're getting. Uh, in this instance, I think, you know, like you say, this is this is the the infancy of Japanese filmmaking to a large extent. And... and uh, you know, Kurosawa was, was, was inventing the wheel as he went along. So I'm, I'm a little bit more forgiving of the overacting by the performers. Uh, I would also say that I think, I'm, I'm in, I find it interesting that the bandit is the one who went on to the most memorable career after this, because I thought his performance was the best of the bunch. Yeah. And it was one that he was actually asked by Kurosawa to, to look at the animal kingdom because he wanted this to be an animalistic character driven more by instinct and, you know, selfish hedonism mm -hmm. that with no compassion to others. So Mifune actually studied the way lions move to, mm. to base his physical motions. That's one of the reasons I found it hard to recognize because I originally saw Rashomon and seven samurai. The first time I saw them when they were less than a week apart, and it took me a while. Like he'd been on screen in Seven Samurai for about half an hour before it clicked that it was the same actor because his physicality is so dramatically different. So, you know, emotionally, yeah, they overact at the point where the only films I could think of made in the last 10 or 20 years where people overact to this degree are the really absurdist comedies where they're trying to ham it up and they're usually fail. Because mm -hmm. it's almost like they're overacting to compensate for for weaknesses. It's, you know, these are the 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 comedies that bomb when they're mm -hmm. overacting like this. I'd I'd be interested in your thoughts on the framing mechanism of the priest and the woodcutter sitting in in Rashomon in, at the entrance of Rashomon uh, in the heavy rain, totally disillusioned with life, effectively. Uh, and telling the story to the stranger, and then to have the the kind of almost non sequitur of having this baby all of a sudden show up, and and having that uh, you know rekindle their faith in humanity, uh, which which is just you know it, it was an interesting choice as far as I'm concerned, and I'm curious what you think. It's well, obviously the. Rashomon does not work without a framing story. That's that's one thing, right? Because it has to be the flashbacks and the different people telling it. Yes. Um, the What I appreciated the most with this, and it's the framing story is the big contrast, Kurosawa actually ties it closely to the weather. So when they're feeling at their worst, it's an absolute downpour. But then you can actually chart how they're feeling emotionally and the level of optimism in the weather, right? When they, when the faith in humanity is restored, that's when the sky's clear mm -hmm. and they had a hard time doing it. I mean, you need a lot of rain before it shows up on film and the rain machines they had available just weren't up to the task at the time. So to get the rain to show up, they actually filled it with black dye. So, yeah, in terms of the framing story, it I think in, in principle it works. I, I like the mechanism. It, it's a, a nice way to come in and tell all the different stories without just setting the whole thing in the court so that right. we get the, the woodcutter's perspective. 
because it is a key part of his character that he tells a different story in court than he tells here because he didn't want to get involved. And it also gives you the chance to get, quote unquote, the true story of what happened at the end by having him tell a different version than what he told in court. Yeah, but even then, it's still not the true story because his story, who's saying, oh, yeah, none of them are, are true. There was no dagger. They killed her with the sword. And then the commoner calls him out on it. He's like, no, you know what? You're lying, too. There was a dagger. You stole mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah, no, and and when I say the true story, that's why I gave you the quote unquote because yeah. it's it's it, yeah. it is the one that kind of lets you piece it together where you at least feel like you understand what happened now. Yeah, at least to to some degree. So he may have the most accurate representation of what happened between the other three, but yeah, he was still leaving out the details. So now they may have done it this way to stay faithful to the the short story it was based on because it was based on a story called In the Grove. Um, but I personally think it might've worked better had, you know, almost if they'd, they'd started the movie with the discovery of the baby. So it was, you know, less of a, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. And more, uh, Oh, you know, this is there and see them build and their attitudes change, you know, in the way they're, they're treating the baby and what kind of future they think this baby's going to have in the world they live in. Yeah. And, I, and I, then pull it off. I think you're, you're, you're onto something there because I think, First of all, uh, I think that would have given you a better feel for why they're so disheartened at the beginning and why the woodcutter taking the baby with good intentions, or at least we believe they are, uh, would be something that would would help to restore your faith. Uh, It also would make more sense just from a logic point of view because the way the movie is presented, all of a sudden the baby is just there. And it's, it's hard to imagine... That, that, you know, no one saw the person who abandoned the baby, that, you know, they're, three of them are sitting there, and this is not a, you know, it's it's not a labyrinth where there's all sorts of different nooks and crannies. They're in a pretty open area mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, you, you would think that they'd be aware of what was going on. So it doesn't have a total logic to it, the way it's presented. Whereas, like I so said, your, your idea of opening with the baby just kind of leaves it as we don't know how the baby got there. We don't really care because it doesn't matter to the story. Uh, and it also makes sense to explain how disheartened they are at that point uh, until they have the uh, the epiphany at the end. So I, I, I do think I, that would be an improvement over what we got. And I, I hate the idea of sitting here as armchair quarterback saying, okay, yeah, this is routinely considered one of the greatest movies of all time, but we could do it better. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really think that's necessarily the right way to, to to look at things. But on the other hand, we also have the, uh, the 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 gift of hindsight as we look at things to say, well, I would have found this to be better. So, yeah, and to be fair, I don't know how much of that is the difference in cultural expectations. It may be that Japanese audiences would respond better to the story as it's told with the baby at the end than at the beginning. Cause that's really who was originally intended for. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily think, well, we're going to get this around the world because the international markets just, I'm not going to say they didn't exist, but they were a whole lot smaller then than they are now. Yeah. And we're also not, not only are we looking at it with a cultural different eye, culturally different eye we're also looking at it through 2019 eyes exactly people who were born and raised in japan who are you know our ages watching it today would not respond the same way as japan 69 years ago yeah exactly now i cannot i cannot comment on the box office on this because uh just on Wikipedia, or I can only give a minor comment. I guess I am commenting. Uh, big Wikipedia it lists the budget as two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and it says the box office is ninety six thousand. But that's the U.S. box office. Uh, you know, this was not a, a, a U.S. film. This was a Japanese film made for a, a Japanese audience, and they're not telling us what the Japanese take on it was. Uh, so therefore, knowing what the United States box office was is probably virtually meaningless yeah uh, aside from yeah it's not a a clear indication of how this did but i would say 
given that it is a subtitled film, she'd expect it to perform better in its native country. And given that the international distribution, it wouldn't have had a wide U.S. release. It would have hit like, you know, New York, L.A., some of the major cities. But foreign films at that time, you're talking about five or six prints circulating. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it did that well and American audiences can say, yeah, we contributed about 40 percent of the overall budget. I I don't think it's a stretch to say this would have been very successful in Japan and was probably quite profitable for yeah, everyone involved. I would I would anticipate that, we're, that it was, but that's purely speculation. Uh, and I wonder if even that ninety six thousand that's that's quoted in here. I wonder if a lot of that is art house releases and uh, showings, you know, over the the course of sixty nine years. As, as opposed to in 1950 or what, at whatever point it was released in the United States. Um, yeah, and it, it wouldn't have quite made it in 1950. Um, the IMDb trivia says that there's rumors that the foreign language film category in the Oscars was created specifically to honor this film. I dug into that a little bit before we recorded. I cannot see how that's true since this was filmed and released in 1950 and the first best foreign language film award was given in 1947. What I had seen and I'm not sure where was that it was given kind of an honorary Oscar as you know, some, I don't remember what title they gave it, but it was an Oscar that they had never given before uh, for a foreign film. And that that eventually developed into the best foreign film Oscar that we then had several years later yeah that's Um, what the the imdb trivia says but the best foreign language film from 1947 to 1955 was not a category with nominations the academy just chose a a film to honor right so this was the fourth film to get that version of the award 1953 there wasn't one and then 1956 is where they started doing the nominations and voting so rashomon won best foreign language in the 1951 ceremony, because it was released in Japan in 1950, it was nominated for Best Cinematography in the 1952 ceremony, which means it would have made it into Los Angeles in 1951, because that's how the nominated awards worked. You had to be released in Los Angeles, where most Academy members were during that calendar year. Okay. One of the things I found enjoyable in its contrast in the movie was and it they mentioned it in the synopsis that i read uh the difference in the level of ferocity of the battle between uh, the bandit and the samurai in the bandits version as opposed to the woodcutters version uh as, as i was watching it that that was actually kind of amusing because you see the first one and again, it's certain, you know, there are certain limitations to the time they filmed it in, but it is a fairly well choreographed battle between the two, and they both appear fairly skillful and deft with their uh, samurai swords. And in the second battle, it's almost comical, the, mm-hmm. the, the fear with which they battle, and, and the trepidation and the lack of skill that ultimately uh, is is displayed before us. And I I found that to be one of the more entertaining aspects of it and almost akin to some of the sitcoms that we talked about. Yeah, and that also says something about the the acting talent. I mean, the expectation was to overact when they're coming off the stage, but you cannot do the, the bandits version of the battle where they're both highly skilled unless you have that skill. And yet later on, they know how to restrain themselves to, to seem clumsy and incompetent mm-hmm. and, and win with a fluke. So the, you know, the actors involved do have, do have, you know, definite physical talents in that area. Yeah. And I guess my criticism of the acting is based more on acting choices than acting ability. When I say that they mm-hmm. appear to be overacting. And I think that goes to exactly what we talked about earlier about, uh, you know, the film, industry being relatively in its developmental stage in Japan and them doing this, doing their acting much more similarly to the way you would do it on a stage where you need everybody in the audience to kind of get what it is you're trying to show and you can't really be as subtle. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I would I would go with that. Uh, I would say as far as the musical score in it is the next thing I just wanted to touch on. As I was watching it, uh, it didn't stand out to me too much, but I thought more of it as being that, uh, again, kind of almost overly dramatic uh, music that you'd anticipate more in a silent film than in a, than in a talkie. Uh, on the Wikipedia page, is only a couple of sentences, so I might as well read that. The film was scored by Fumio Hayasaka, who is among the most respected Japanese composers. At the director's request, he included an adaptation of Bolero by Maurice Ravel, especially during The Woman's Story. Due to st- setbacks and some lost audio, the crew took the urgent step of bringing Mufune back to the studio after filming to record another line. Recording engineer Iwo Otani added it to the film along with the music using a different microphone. Uh, so it, it's not the smoothest most subtle music in my mind but again i think some of that is attributable to the time period that this was filmed in and the style of the time mm-hmm. i don't know if you had any any thoughts on on the music and the score in general yeah well, like you said it it does play out like american films did at that time and a lot of that for something that that feels just a little bit off, like competent, but not ideal. I'm always curious how much of this is, you know, drawing on maybe Kabuki theater or some other Japanese stage tradition that I am less familiar with. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause where are the origins? Cause I've seen, you know, if you watch Kurosawa's career as it develops over the next few decades, you know, he knows what makes a good movie. If you watch some of his films from the early eighties, well, now the subtlety is there. Right. So it really is going from early to late. And he is one of the few filmmakers that actually made that transition. If you look at, you know, American films, pick any industry, the people who were successful in the early eras are not necessarily the ones who figure out the subtlety and continue to be successful as film matures. I mean, one of the reasons Hitchcock makes my list of top directors is because he's one of the guys that figured it out. So he started making silent films in England in the 1920s and was still making quality films in the 1970s. Right. There are very few filmmakers out there, you know, in front of or behind the camera who can span that many decades and still fit the aesthetic of the time. That's I I agree. Uh, and when we talk about film scores, you know, Hitchcock had the benefit of uh, Bernard Herrmann for a lot of his. So, uh, you know, yeah. there, there, there's something to be said for the collaboration. Uh, when we look at the great masters of film, that it's it's very rarely a one person thing that you can just point to. You know, they 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 build on they they put together a good team. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, that's actually something I've noticed. A lot of my my favorite directors for what they do well, they tend to pick people who are really good at specific jobs. And the the three ones that they tend to really latch onto are composer, editor, and director of photography. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and is it any surprise, I mentioned Steven Spielberg before, is it any surprise that almost (laughs) everything he's done has been scored by John Williams? (laughs) Yeah, that's, you know, Spielberg with Williams, which was almost a fluke that he got Williams because he was just one of the guys that was available for Jaws. And then when Jaws came in, he's like, okay, (laughs) this is the guy I'm going to use for every movie from now on. And, you know, we've got wise choice. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's a, you know, Ong Lee is another great Asian filmmaker and he's known for cinematography and he's had the same director of cinematography or director of photography on every film. Because it's, you know, he worked with the guy the first time and was just, oh, yeah, he got what I was going for and cranked it up so many notches. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you do you yeah. do see that. I mean, I think the more common uh, tendency is if you see a particular director who has a, you know, fairly big filmography, uh, you start to see very easily the the reuse of certain actors you know with steven spielberg mm-hmm. you see tom hanks in a lot of movies with uh, you know martin scorsese you see robert de niro in so many movies uh but if you start to 
look more closely, you do see it with a lot of these people, the same composers used over and over again, or even if you're looking more closely, the same director of, of cinematography. Uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of, uh, right now off the top of my head, uh, you know, when Clint Eastwood first started, uh, working in the directorial, uh, field uh he had made movies with don siegel who used i always i don't know why but I, it always stood out to me that his cinematographer was bruce surtees and then when clint eastwood started to do it that was his guy and he would use him over and over again uh so there's definitely a tendency to work with the guys you're comfortable with and the guys you think are going to bring your vision to the screen and mm-hmm. I, and I, you know it's it's a little bit more you know you got to d- dive a little deeper to actually see who these people are uh, and i think generally we usually usually give it much more of a surface view when we give the director so much credit for what we do end up with or so much blame if it's not so good uh, but it is a group effort and i think trying to attribute it to one person is probably foolish in most cases oh yeah we'll look at um, woody allen with annie hall you know, it was best picture. It's really what launched his career. And he's the first to admit his cut was a mess. And, you know, the original version of Annie Hall had a different title and it was about five different love stories. And it was the editor who said, yeah, this love story between your character and Annie Hall is the only one that's working. So he cut the other two hours of the three and a half hour movie out mm-hmm. wow. and left it as just that. And Woody Allen's like, oh, my God, he he fixed a movie that was horribly broken that went on to win Best Picture. This is the only editor I will ever use for the rest of my life. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, I said cinematographer and, and composer and editor is just as, just as if not more important than, than mm-hmm. those two because that could be critical when you're watching a movie. So, yeah. all right, all that said, I think it's time to come to the final question. What do you think, Blaine? I think... Overall, I mean, even though it's number 113 on the IMDb Top 250 of all time, I've got to give it a Jaws 2. To qualify that, I would say that's because if you're coming in as a student who's familiar with the history of film on looking at the way films are made, this is going to be Jaws. You know, it's a watermark. It's a textbook story on how to do this kind of storytelling. If you're more of the mass audience you know, open to subtitled films, but coming in looking at it as a purely as a piece of entertainment, I would say it's only a Jaws three if you're just here for an entertaining story. I, so I think I'm two sorry. of them together puts it at, at that Jaws two, just largely because of its age. I tend to agree with pretty much everything you just said. I think from you know, depending on what seat you're sitting in, uh it's going to make a difference. If you were an aspiring filmmaker, if you were a student of the history of filmmaking, this movie's Jaws, and and it's it's a it's a must see film. Uh, I'm quite I'm you know as much as I love movies and I do, uh, I'm probably a step below that because I'm not a, an aspiring filmmaker. I'm just a film devotee and appreciator. Uh, so it's probably a Jaws two for me uh, because it was something I felt the need to see. As, as a uh, fan of film, and it's something that if I were flipping through the channel and this was on the independent film channel, I might stop and continue to watch it because I do find it to be fascinating. Uh, but it's got enough flaws due to time that it would keep me from consider, you know, considering it to be kind of that perfect movie that would go into that category. And if you're not a fan of filmmaking and a fan of film history, I think you'd be bored by it and you turn it off. So it, it, it does have that range. So ultimately I got to put it at a Jaws 2, uh, but with that caveat. So, uh, but this, to me, this, this is just, you know, as again, as a fan of, of movies, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to take a movie that's on, you know, routinely on the greatest films of all time and check it off, check off the box that now I have seen it. Yeah. And seen it and appreciated it. So that's that's what all I could ask for. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on, Blaine. Oh, thanks for having me. And why don't you tell everybody where they can find you nowadays? Um, I do my podcasting through Bureau42.com. So I've got a couple podcasts that are running right now. There's 
a movie podcast called Make Me Watch It. On the 14th of every month, I watch a movie I own but haven't gotten around to watching yet. I've got a bi-weekly X-Files retrospective podcast currently going through season seven of the X-Files. And uh, starting this December, Trey Hooks and I, who joined Paul to discuss Psycho, are launching 99 Years 100 Films. We're going through every Best Picture winner of all time from the Academy Awards and discussing and debating whether or not they deserve that status. You know, looking back on them several decades later and seeing what else was released that year. And that's 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 my uh, that's the one that falls into my wheelhouse. That I'll, I'll yeah. be listening to all the time. Yeah. So and, those are the regularly released ones. There is a uh, bedtime in the public domain where I read a public domain novel. So it's basically an audio book that I, I'm doing a couple times a year. Some of them more skewed for the, the kids. So there's, you know, the Oz novels and the Alice in Wonderland books. But the most recent one was the time machine with HG by HG Wells. Right, good stuff. And just to clarify, I also subscribe to Make Me Watch It and uh, listen to that regularly, and it's a quality show. I almost made it. I feel like I almost made it sound like, you know, I I can't be bothered with these other ones. I don't listen to the X Files when I have to apologize, but it's just I've never been a fan of the X Files. I've never really watched it, so uh, there's just not enough time for me <laughs> to to watch a, a, to listen to a show dedicated to a show that I never watched and probably, unfortunately, never will. Oh. Well, but anyway, if you want, I can give you a list of best of episodes that stand alone. And uh, maybe at some point that would be worth my my while to, if I have a little time for binging, and then I could pick out the, you know, cherry pick the best episodes to watch, as long as it wouldn't ruin my ability to follow the story. Because if I'm just stepping in yeah. and, and I'm not going to know what's going on, then I don't know if that would work. Yeah, they they talk about how serialized the X Files was with the ongoing mythology, but really that only plays into sweeps week. Okay. So if you've got a like a 22-episode season, you're going to have five or six episodes that contribute to the overall story, and the rest are standalone. Right. If you want to get me that list, then I think I would probably try to get to it at some point. Yeah. Actually, uh, you know what? Following the Rashomon conversation, the season five episode, Bad Blood, does stand alone. And it's inspired by Rashomon. All right. So, so that's, that's the one I'll start. I'll start with that. All right, thanks again for coming on, Blaine, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, See you in two weeks. Hello, I'm Brian Trenchard-Smith. In every great director's career, there is at least one studio executive who tries to stop his film being made, predicts its failure, then grabs the glory when the movie is a big success. We expect this in Hollywood culture, but 60 years ago, it happened to Japan's greatest director, Akira Kurosawa, on the film that introduced Japanese cinema to Western audiences, the extraordinary Rashomon. Masaichi Nagata, head of Daiye Studios, hated the script. But what is it about, he kept asking. He opposed its production, called the finished film incomprehensible, demoted the executives who championed it, and resisted its entry to the 1951 Venice Film Festival. When Rashomon won the grand prize, Nagata claimed sole credit for its groundbreaking structure and style without acknowledging Kurosawa. When the festival shipped the Golden Lion to the Daiye Studios, Nagata kept the trophy for himself. The foreign language category was being prepared in 1951, but the Academy gave Rashomon an honorary Oscar anyway. The subtitles on Daiye's subsequent re-release trailer show that Japanese trailers were just as full of hyperbole as their American counterparts. Rain is a frequent feature in Kurosawa's films, often heralding the arrival of a major character or reflecting his inner turmoil. And it is here, at Rashomon Gate, that Kurosawa's adaptation of a couple of famous short stories begins. A notorious bandit captures a samurai and his wife. The woman is raped, the samurai killed, but by whom? how and why. Cinema goers had never seen a film that replaced linear narrative with multiple but conflicting recollections of the same events. Writers and directors everywhere quickly embraced the technique, so it seems commonplace today. Pulp Fiction, The Usual Suspects, Run Lola Run are three of my favorites, but in 1951 the impact of Rashomon's innovative storytelling on critics and audiences alike was sensational. The movie kicked Toshiro Mifune's career into high gear, and lifted Machiko Kiyo, the samurai's wife, out of a rut of buxom sexpot roles into major Japanese features like Ugetsu and Gate of Hell. 
Her only Hollywood casting was opposite Marlon Brando and Glenn Ford in the sadly unfunny comedy Tea House of the August Moon. Despite a small cast and three basic locations, Rashomon still cost $140,000, about twice the average for those times. Aware of the studio's anxiety, Kurosawa shot the film quickly and on budget, which was not always the case in his early career. Perhaps efficiency was also motivated by a desire to get out of the sweltering heat of the Nara Mountains where most of the picture was shot, an area crawling with leeches which would drop out of the trees onto cast and crew. The photography by Kazuo Miyagawa is dazzling, full of artful compositions and complex dolly shots. He may be the first feature cinematographer ever to point a moving camera, as seen earlier, directly at the sun through a veil of trees. International recognition led to several American incarnations of Rashomon. In 1959, it became a Broadway play with Rod Steiger as the bandit and Claire Bloom as the samurai's wife. The play was adapted as a television drama directed by Sidney Lumet. In 1964, director Martin Ritt turned it into a western entitled The Outrage, with Paul Newman emulating the Tojure Mefune performance as a wild-eyed Mexican bandido. But the transfer to the Old West feels clunky. Nothing comes close to the power of the original. Tojure Mefune's high-voltage performance established him as a major Japanese star. The studio chief hated his acting, which he deemed inexplicably exaggerated. Not grasping Mifune's animalistic tics as signs that the stress of banditry and his approaching execution had driven him insane. Despite the studio's pessimism, Rashomon was the fourth highest grocer in Japan that year and has made a lot of money for arthouse distributors ever since. Mm -hmm.